Welcome to the podcast, motherfuckers. <laughs> it's no longer so, It's no longer you reacting with words, just reacting with funky bass lines to what's going on. <laughs> and then he found himself a mistress. <laughs> Accused of spying in the heart of government. <laughs> He'd been selling secrets to the Swiss? <laughs> okay, I'll take I'll take the bass off you. There we go. Look at us, the team's back together. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is consistently eccentric a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser-known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This story begins on March 4th, 1923. So just over a hundred years ago. Mm. Mm. Because that was the day that Alfred Patrick Caldwell Moore was born. He was the only son of Army Captain Charles Caldwell Moore and his wife Gertrude because normally it takes two to make a child. Are we still in the era of the firstborn's going to be a priest? No, no, this is 1923. Is that so this is between the wars. Oh, right. He's yeah. going to war. <laughs> well, he's he's probably going to war, that's fair. His, His dad went to war. And is a, a is captain. A, he's a captain, yeah, yeah. sorry. I was, I was giving him a colonel. No, he's yeah, not been promoted, yeah. he's a captain. And his wife, Gertrude, uh, who had at one time had aspirations to be a famous opera singer and apparently had trained in Italy to be an opera singer, but then, as it was the 1920s, had met a man and immediately, give up on your dreams, Gertrude. Right. You need to be a homemaker. Young Patrick's first home was in Bognor Regis, but the family soon moved to East Grimstead, which is where he spent the majority of his childhood. Very nice-sounding places to live. So West Sussex. It is? Mm. Wow, look at you. Oh, then you did live in Brighton. I did live in East Sussex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Damn those West Sussex <laughs> bastards. And when I say the majority, I mean practically every day. Because at the age of only six, it was discovered that Patrick had a serious heart condition. And as a result, he was unable to attend any germ-ridden schools. Sensitive boy. He's a precious child. Put him in the bubble. Yep, get him in that bubble. Make sure that he has no human contact. That's, that's the key. Uh, instead, he was homeschooled by a procession of tutors. Procession? Yeah. You wrote procession? I wrote procession, yes. Instead of series? <laughs> well, both words are valid. <laughs> okay. If you want series, a series of tutors, that's okay. fine. I've got you. I just, I like the idea of procession. You, you just, just tried sneaking that in. I'm not allowing it. <laughs> fine. <laughs> With practically no opportunities to socialise, Patrick retreated into books. And, on account of not being distracted by things like games and physical activity... He claims that he was still in his sixth year on this planet when he read the book that would influence the course of the next eight decades of his life. The Bible. You're really pushing this firstborn son's a priest line. No, it wasn't the Bible. I was trying to think of a book. It was... It was a, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's a go-to for a lot of people, that one. I stopped there, but what I meant to say, I was, trying to, I was trying to think of a book that came out around that time. <laughs> the Bible. <laughs> yeah. 
well-known early 20th century novel, The Bible. Uh, It was a non-fiction book, if that helps. Ooh. Um, Origin of this... Is it Charles Darwin? No, no, it's not. The book in question was The Story of the Solar System, written by G.F. Chambers in 1902. That was my next guess. Yeah. After the Bible. Now, I say he claimed to have read this book because... As we shall see as we go through this episode, Patrick, he could be accused of being creative with the truth at times. He's not always going to be a reliable narrator of his own life. And although the book is described, to be fair to him, as being for general reading, it is 208 pages long and not written in a style that could be described as easily accessible for a six-year-old. Is there any pictures? There are, but they're sort of um, demonstrating planetary movements and things. Very much sort of um, diagrams rather than pictures. An example of what I mean in terms of the the prose. Take the following excerpt regarding the planet Venus. The existence on Venus of an atmosphere of considerable density and extent is well established. Proof of this is to be found in the marked diminution of the planet's brilliancy towards the Terminator and in the faint curved line of light which occasionally can be seen when the planet is near inferior conjunction. When so situated, so much of the planet itself as can be seen illuminated shows as a narrow radiant crescent of light, ending off in two points, called indifferently cusps or horns. Yeah. Mm. Six. He's going, yes, makes sense. Yeah. Mm. Well, he hadn't had any interaction with anybody else. He's just had his head in those books for three years. Since the age of... No, he was six. He'd only been sort of housebound that year. Oh. The heart... This is a few months after the heart condition was noted and they were like, nope, you're not going to school, mate. So I'd, I'd appreciate if he'd had years and years of being a hermit, basically. How old were you when you read your first book? Uh, don't know. Can you remember what book you read? No, but... The... What's the first memory of a book you read? The Biff, Chip and Kipper books. But they were school sort of... Um syllabus ones i distinctly what, what remember year? that i was in so what year, when did you when did you read them well, the year well there would have been reception wouldn't they so it would have been four you know when i read I've... them <laughs> when i'm telling you <laughs> last week i need to know how it ends i can distinctly remember starting the lord of the rings the first time i tried it i was still in primary school That's and that didn't work out that was too early for lord of the rings But regardless of if Patrick read the book as a precocious six-year-old or at some point a few years later, it is the fact that he became obsessed with astronomy and began seriously studying the night sky, at first only with a pair of binoculars. He set himself a goal of learning a new constellation each and every night, which is great until it's overcast. And then you're like, oh, no, my goal. Uh, That was until he got his first telescope, and found himself drawn towards observing the moon. Mm. He was so obsessed with our closest cosmic neighbour that it quickly became his specialist subject. So he devoured books on the moon. He spent all of his nights just looking at every little section of the surface of the moon that's visible to us. It was his thing. Do you think he'd be happy that uh, India have got to this south pole of the moon? I think he would, yeah. And you'll Do you think his father would be happy? <laughs> <laughs> I, d- I don't know. I, th- I think his father would be confused why there was an independent Indian yeah, country at that point. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? 
You mean we got to the moon? Yeah. We just used Indians to build the rocket. No, no, no. Nothing to do with it. What? By the age of only 11, Patrick was an accomplished amateur astronomer, to the point that when a neighbour called Major Levin put him forward to be considered for membership of the British Astronomers Association, henceforth the BAA, he was accepted as their youngest ever member. At what age? <clears throat> 11. 11. Not only was Patrick remarkably lucky that a random neighbour happened to be one of the only 830 members of the BAA, but he also happened to live across from Brockhurst Estate, whose millionaire owner, Frederick Hanbury, had just so happened to build a private observatory. Ooh. Inventively, he called it the Hanbury Observatory. Nice. So you gotta, you got to know who's, who's done it. It's going to be a monument to him forever. Is that where the part, part of the roof opens? Yeah, and... yeah, yeah. Oh. So it'll have a much larger telescope hung within that so that you can... Yeah, the, yeah. the housing is the building, essentially. Patrick befriended the 83-year-old observatory director, William Sandler Franks. We can see where this is going. Who allowed... Patrick became the head of the observatory by 16. 16. Yeah, he's, he's going to be You reckon run... it's 16? He's going to be running that by the time the guy's dead. <laughs> what were you wishing death? You've only I'm just met. He's 86. William Sandler Franks. <laughs> just being realistic. It's 1920 and he's 86. He's not. He's only 83. He's sprightly. All right, sorry. Yeah, he was only, he was only born in what? <laughs> 1840. <laughs> he's fine, he's got many years. Yeah. He's a proper old Victorian gent, he was. I've seen pictures of him and he looks like Prof Wito. It's like just the wild white hair oh, sticking yeah. out, <laughs> tiny little round spectacles and just full-on austere sort of old-school Victorian dress. He's a wizard. He's a bit of a wizard, yeah. Well, he was, you know, more than happy to allow an enthusiastic 12-year-old to use the large 12-inch telescope and he even taught him the basics of how to run an observatory. That doesn't seem that big. I, I think that's to do with the size of the um, mirror that's being used inside it. Right. Magnifying lens. So you haven't got this massive room for a 12-inch telescope? No, a, a, one with a, a lens that's 12 inches, the actual size of the Oh, the, the lens is 12 yeah, inches? Yeah, sorry, yeah. Right, okay. <clears throat> I said mirror, didn't I? It's not a periscope. <laughs> it's a telescope. <laughs> God. Anyway... Yeah, so he, he started teaching Patrick how to do it, you know, keeping the logs and the observations every night, what you need to do. Patrick, he was he was instantly besotted with his elderly mentor and described him as looking remarkably like a garden gnome. <laughs> Just, I'm guessing in an endearing fashion and not, not as a put-down. I imagine it's a put-down. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Now, mm, gnomes. Mm. unfortunately, much like a garden gnome, it turned out that William, he was rather fragile. And he died in 1935 following a freak road accident. He was on his bicycle, riding to the observatory like he did every morning. And even though there were only a handful of cars on the road... 90? 19... 19, no, yeah. you said 1935? Yeah. So is it like 90-something? No, 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 no. He would have, he would have been eighty five when he died. So he got it when he was. Oh, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Yeah, yeah. So Patrick's going to be thirteen when he's the observatory guy because he's learned all the things from the gnome. <laughs> he's learned everything from the gnome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most people would have seen the death of the mentor as a blow, but Patrick, he he took that lemon and he turned it into some it's lemonade. The perfect job for him. He can't mingle with other people because mm. he'll die. Yeah. Or get an illness and die. Mm. And all he cares about is 
Looking at the moon. Looking at, yeah, the moon and stars. Yeah, well, he went, you know, to the funeral. And at the funeral, he bumped into Frederick Hambry. And Hambry mentioned that he kind of wanted someone to continue to run his observatory, but he wasn't too keen on placing a job ad um, and having to conduct interviews. I mean, how would he know what a good observatory director would be like? He's he's He uses it to show off to people. He's not actually interested in astronomy to, to any great degree. So he just thought, well, the 14-year-old kid has been hanging around on evenings and weekends. He's probably familiar enough that he can do it. So he offered Patrick the job of observatory director at the age of 14. Bloody hell. 40. So 16. No, 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 that's old hat. You want to have got your first directorship at the age of at least 14. You don't want to have fully made your way through puberty, if you can avoid it. God, what was that? I had a paper on at 14. Yeah, yeah, I know. A part-time paper. Yeah. <laughs> I complained about the Sunday morning papers being too big. I was talking I- about this yesterday, one of the supplements, it ran for like 10 weeks and it was the great speeches mm-hmm. of, his, of, of history. I thought you were going to say of Hitler. Like, <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was in the Daily Mail. Um, <laughs> it was the great speeches of history mm. and I stole every one of those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. To be honest, it's the people where you turned up and they had the Sunday paper with all the supplements and they had a letterbox that was so small. And then they rang up to complain that you'd taken the paper apart to feed it through the letterbox. Yeah. Like, you'd locked... It was raining. You'd locked the door. It was raining. This was me doing my very best. I didn't take the paper up. I just took out the supplements and fed them through one by one. What's the first thing you do when you get your paper in? It's the middle of January. And you, it, yeah. Shh. Oh, God. To have the de- dexterity in your fingers when it's that <laughs> cold <laughs> to be folding. Yeah, all of those things. You went above and beyond, Joe. I did. God, I Do you remember when uh, our brother got hypothermia? Do you remember that on the paper round? Do you remember that? <laughs> why, should, why are we laughing about when that? When he came back blue, crying. Yeah, we. I think F, uh, all of us did at one point. He came back from one of those where you got up in the morning and you could see your breath in your bedroom. It yeah. was that cold and you're yeah. like, oh no, I've got to go out in that. <laughs> yeah. For, I think the post office was paying £5 a week. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But even back then, it was 50p for a walnut whip, which was my treat. Oh, no. So it was a tenth of your weekly pay. Yeah, it was a walnut whip on a Saturday. Oh, God, I'm ruined. (laughs) So tasty, though. Anyway, observatory director at the age of 14. Sorry, yeah. And this may explain why, when later that year, Patrick, again 14, won £87 on the football pools, so he's gambling, Uh, it's the equivalent of around 10 grand today he won. He didn't see the need to buy any more astronomy equipment because he's got free access to a 12-inch telescope. Instead, he took his whole family on a holiday to Belgium, which must have been lovely for his World War One veteran father. Mm. Yeah. Hey, do you know where we should go? Let's go and check out the Somme. Oh, look at all those poppies. Mm. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, and on a whim, also bought himself a xylophone. He taught himself to read music and quickly progressed to writing his own pieces. So xylophones are the metal ones. The metal ones, yes. The glockenspiel is the wooden one. Marimba? That's something completely different. Sounds nice, though. That's a wooden one. Yeah, but it's the... Isn't it a wooden one with the metal teeth that you pluck? No, marimba you play with... What am I thinking of, then? Um, Jews harp? (laughs) God damn it! (laughs) 
Okay. So yeah, he bought himself a xylophone, learned to play. Using the telescope at his observatory, Patrick continued to focus most of his attention on the moon. Specifically, he was drawn to the areas closest to the dark side of the moon, which could only be observed when conditions were absolutely perfect. Areas such as the Mare Orientale, which was actually discovered by H.P. Williams in 1937. However, Patrick would later decide to claim the discovery as his own. And he got away with it. Oh, really? Yeah. Because he was in with the, you know, the BAA, and he was interested in, in the moon. And any astronomer who, you know, was studying and researching the moon at any point, he'd be all over what they were doing. And he's like, this guy said he's discovered what could be a, a, a sea. And no one seems to have really picked up on that fact or given it a lot of thought. So he just waited until this, this guy died. And then went, oh, I, do you know, I think there's a sea there. Yes. I found that. <laughs> and then he got to name it. And he called it what? The Mare Orientale. Mare Orientale. Because it was on the eastern side of the, the face of the moon that you could see. So as it was in the Far East, it was a play on that. Right. I don't know what that means, but carry on. Well, the Orient was the East, wasn't it? What's Mare? Uh, mare, as in sea. Mal de Mare. Oh, right. French for sea. So it's it's he, he, for some reason, decided to... I thought, the way you were explaining that, I thought Mare meant East somewhere. <laughs> Orientale was... Uh, east. Orient, east, East. East orientated. <laughs> orientated. Orient. You overthought it, yeah. yeah. Sorry. sorry, I should have said he, he named it in French for some reason. Right. But in 1939, when he was only 16, Patrick Moore's future as an amateur astronomer slash oh light plagiarist... Oh, my God, it's Patrick Moore. ...was thrown into chaos. <laughs> How have we not got that? ...was thrown into chaos by the start of World War II. Holy shit, it's Patrick Moore. Yes, that's what I've been saying all this time, Patrick I know, Moore. but I'll just put it together then. <laughs> I've thought of Patrick Moore in years. Oh, So well. monocled... Yes. This is Patrick Moore. This is Patrick Moore. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. Patrick, a true teenage patriot, ignored the risks of his heart condition and immediately signed up for the RAF. In order to do so, he had an older boy take the physical on his behalf and he sort of repaid the favour by taking the written exam on the taller, stronger, thick boy's behalf. Oh, God, what a mess. Such was his determination to fight against the Nazi menace. It worked. That guy did the physical twice. Patrick did the... Yeah, I'm sure that up. worked, but I don't think it's going to work. What, for Patrick? Action. Yeah. you got a dummy and a guy that can't cope with the regular G-force of the Earth, <laughs> let alone... <laughs> going up in a plane. Yeah. Well, see, that's the story that Patrick tells. Well, told that he always um, would tell people that he signed up at the age of 16 and he lied to get in because he just wanted to fight the Nazi menace. It's not true. He was a Nazi. Well, he, he may have lied about when he signed up to fight the Nazi menace because military records show that he joined the RAF in 1942 at the age of 19. He trained in Canada before flying missions as a navigator in a bomber as part of the famous Bomber Command. So I'm not saying that he didn't fight in the RAF. He did, and he was, you know, he was doing some dangerous missions because he was part of Bomber Command. So they were flying deep into enemy territory to, to drop bombs on German cities. It's weird because his lies so far, they're not full lies. So it's just... Yeah, just stretching it. Just, yeah, beefing up with the, the uh, 
the truth. So, something about it is he's a raconteur. Right. You know, he likes to juice the story a little bit. Like, well, I know if I say 16, it's going to sound slightly more romantic. That I was just this bright-eyed young thing who just wanted to fight for his country. The percentage of flight crew who died whilst on missions over the course of the war in Bomber Command was approximately 44%. Sir Patrick's contribution, even though it was over three years less than he claimed it was, was a significant one. You know, he was doing something that required an incredible amount of bravery. Obviously, he was a navigator because he was perfectly trained to navigate via the stars. Right. He knew that he knew the, the night sky better than anyone, so... He said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he'd... He'd studied a constellation every day Yeah. for, well, he was six and he's now, what, 19. So for the last 13 years, how many constellations does he know? How many of the constellations, you know, when he's navigating, it's called pl- the Patrick Plough. And- <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's Patrick's belt over there. <laughs> yeah. I discovered that, you know. <laughs> However, being Patrick, he had to embellish his resume just a little bit more with three stories he loved to tell about his time in the RAF, all of which are... At best, questionable. Number one, Patrick told people that he met Orville Wright of the Wright brothers at a function. Patrick said that this happened in 1940, but as we know, he didn't join the RAF until 1942, so the date had to be wrong at the very least. There was a function in Washington, D.C. that Orville Wright attended in 1943, when Patrick was at least on the right side of the Atlantic, and he could conceivably have attended alongside other RAF officers, but there's no record of that. Okay. So. So that's that. That's true. That's true. Because it's. If I if I mention that the reason that he was not this unbelievable is because he liked to claim that he was the only man in history to have met both Orville Wright, the first man to fly, and Neil Armstrong, the first man on the moon. I'm sure he met Neil Armstrong. No, he he definitely met. He interviewed. He's, We've got right. footage of him interviewing Neil Armstrong. But it's adding this in. Okay. It's quite a you know dramatic thing to be able to say, you know, I span that gap from first flight to first moon landing. The second story that he loved to tell. That he met Einstein at a party once and ended up performing a duet with Patrick on the piano and Einstein on violin. Now, to be fair, this one definitely did happen. To another member of the BAA called Reggie Waterfield. But when Reggie died in 1986, Patrick saw no reason that the story should die with him. So he took ownership of the anecdote and just replaced himself. Oh, wow. Yeah. Placed himself in Reggie's shoes. And we know that because other members of the BAA would sort of say, yeah, I remember Reggie used to tell that story. And then suddenly he was dead a few months and Patrick started <laughs> sort of, oh, yes, you know, I met Einstein once. And I'm going, did you? Yeah, we played a ditty. A bit like Reggie. Oh, I don't know about Reggie, but I definitely did. Which is fair enough. I mean, again, I understand the urge of not wanting to let such a cool story die. Are all die. these lies told when he's an old man? Uh, no, they're told throughout his life. Right. Some when he's older, some when he's younger. But that one, he... He, he was he definitely least, older there. Yeah, well, he at least waited until the person who whose story it was had died. You know, he wasn't sort of challenging that man directly, going, no, that was me. He just... And the only person that can refute it is dead. Yeah, yeah. That's Apart what from wanted. all the other people in the room that were still Who alive. Who were too polite yeah, yeah. and British. To, to <laughs> sort of, Patrick, come on, we all know. Third, and most controversially, Patrick claimed that his fiancée, Lorna, an ambulance woman living in London, 
was killed by a Nazi bomb in 1943. Now, the most likely date for this event would have been the 20th of January, when 28 Nazi bombers targeted Lewisham, Poplar, Deptford, Bermondsey and Greenwich in London. However, no one who knew Patrick at the time could recall him having been in a three-year relationship, like he claimed, or even that he'd ever mentioned a woman called Lorna. So he's, he would have started the relationship when he was 15? Yeah, he claimed that he, in 1940, had started... No, in 1943. In 1940, he would have been um, 16 going on 17. Right. Um, and they had this three-year relationship that he hadn't mentioned to any of his friends or associates with Lorna to the point that he apparently was about to get married without any anyone in his life knowing. Patrick never gave a surname for his paramour and would not answer any follow-up questions regarding this story of tragedy. However, it did give him a convenient um, reason, rationale, for his status as a lifelong bachelor. Right. Yeah. And I did, I did try to find out about Nazi bombing raids in London in 1943, and actually there weren't that many. So when I say this date, it was the only major bombing campaign pretty much in 1943, and there was no evidence anywhere that I could find of an ambulance being targeted or accidentally being hit during these raids. Right. A school got hit, lots of children died, um, but an ambulance... Not a mention. And you think that would be mentioned at least in passing. So I'm saying that I don't think that Lorna existed. What? Why? Do we get to the bottom of why you think he lies so much? Not really. Just fish. It seems it's just, just part of his character. I think in this one, he was sick of people asking questions about, oh, you've never really appeared to have any relationships and you live at home with your mother, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <clears throat> you know, you're always keen to um, take any young male and amateur astronomer under your wing and spend long hours in your shed with your telescopes showing showing him the stars. So I think it was just to damp down those rumours and to... Do think he was gay? No, I don't, I don't particularly think he was gay. I think it was a case of he was just sick of people, so he took control of the narrative and said, no, the reason is because there was only one woman for me and she was killed by a Nazi bomb. Yeah. And that's why I hate the... Nazis. That's the only reason yeah. for him. Yeah. It's a personal tragedy. Up until then, I was ambivalent. I thought Hitler had some good ideas, but then. Yeah. God damn him. Then it got personal. <laughs> yes. And then, of course, the follow up story is that Hitler didn't actually shoot himself in that bunker. Patrick, <laughs> fueled on rage, yeah. took one of um, the Wright brothers' flyers, flew over, and shot him personally. This is for Lorna. He choked him with half of a spectacle. A monocle? Yeah, no, it, that's the story of how he got oh, his monocle. turned into a monocle. Originally, there were glasses. Um, but he, Snapped uh, in half yeah. while he was using them to throttle Hitler. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. We don't know. Patrick definitely If they ever find Hitler's that. body, there'll, be, there'll just be one lens up his... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's used a lens to slice his jugular. Yeah. Either way, whether all of these tales were true or not, Patrick left the RAF in 1945, and moved in with his mother. He tried his hand at teaching for a few years, recalling later that he was a fan of corporal punishment. Because his dad died by this point. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. oh yes, sorry. So his mum is now a widow, and he's going to move in 
so that they can share the burden of the bills and such. So, yeah, he tried his hand at teaching for a few years, recalling later that he was a fan of corporal punishment, but only as a means of deterring bullies. So he'd hit people that hit people. Yeah, the only crime that he felt was um, worthy of cap- uh, corporal... Not capital punishment, he wasn't <laughs> that, corporal punishment was bullying other people. So he's... Yeah. It's firm but fair, I think, was his teaching style. And it was the 40s. You, yeah. were, you were perfectly entitled to wail on a kid. If you wanted to. Did you ever get hit by a teacher? Uh, no, because we, I was, in, I was in school in the 90s. It was pretty much illegal by that point. Mm. Not in Northern Ireland, though. I think that was 2014 when that was finally outlawed entirely. Slapping kids. Yeah, yeah. You, the, last, the last place you could do it was in private schools in Northern Ireland. And in the home. And in the home, yeah. Obviously. You couldn't do it, yeah. With an open fist, not yeah. a closed fist. Well, mum used to slap your legs and your arse. Yeah, and our dad would find the nearest brother and smack your head against. <laughs> yeah, that was true. <laughs> was like, I wasn't even involved, yeah. and now I've got a lump on the side of my head because I was just close to you. <laughs> so yeah, and um, despite the righteous violence of being a teacher, he found that something was missing in his life. It wasn't scratching that itch, and eventually he gravitated back towards his one true love of astronomy, the moon. Mm. Yeah, pretty much. He started to look like the face of the moon in his older years. He did. He just—he was just becoming the moon, <laughs> and and then he just claimed he was the moon. <laughs> <laughs> As the vast majority of BAA members were over the age of fifty, could you believe it? Most of the British Astron- Astronomical Association members. Yeah. When you had to, in order to get in, you had to be um, nominated by someone who was already in the BAA. And seconded by another member of the BAA, and then they had to have a voting process. Did he get in because of his original tutor? He he got in because the guy across the road was a member of the BAA and was impressed by his enthusiasm and and forwarded his name. But it's like they were complaining that they were all old. It's like, well, who do you forward and nominate regularly? And like, oh, other people of my age Mm. who share the same views as me. Like, well, yeah, of course you're going to have quite a homogenous. Oh, he's rising. He's going to rise people. up the ranks. Oh, easily, yeah. He's just bullying everybody in it. Well, he was considered just because of his age, basically, to be an up and coming star. It's like here's the here's the guy that we can sort of trot out to go put on the pamphlets. Yeah, this look, young, relatively young, thirty somethings. Like I imagine a... he's always looked the way he died. Well, we'll get into it, but um, he was he was happy to be used in that way as the sort of propaganda arm right. of the BAA. Uh, he liked being the centre of attention, as his lies attest. It's like, I, I will always one-up your story because I am Patrick Moore. And anything I think a lot did... of that was um, because you said he didn't have many friends growing up because he was isolated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A desperate need. So to... he didn't have that socialisation of, of the children calling you bullshit. No, no, no. He just made up fantastical stories in his yeah. head and then he uh, could just sit in them. challenged. Yeah, he could live with them. Yeah. He also had a number of endearing quirks, which you've kind of alluded to. His monocle and pipe combination had been a staple since the age of 15. Wow. Because at the age of 15, he'd been told that he had one eye that was weak and the uh, optician tried to fit him for a pair of glasses. And Patrick, in a very logical way, just said, why do I need two lenses when only one of my eyes needs correcting? I'll have a monocle, please. It's funny because when you look at him and he's older, 
You know how, like, if you tie a rope, an old uh, rope in a tree, mm. with, there's been like a rope swing or something, and the tree sort of grows around the rope. Mm. His his eye lids grew around the sort mo- of grew around the, the monocle, didn't it? Oh, he became very very good at wearing a monocle. I don't think he needs to put any effort into no. holding that in place. That was just it. Was the, there all the time? Yeah, I imagine he slept in it. That loose skin just enveloped that <laughs> piece of glass. But yeah, he had that in the pipe since the age of 15. And he continued to play the xylophone um, in public whenever he could. He was up to concert level. Could he even play the piano? Well, I'm guessing he there was some transferable skill there. He could play the piano as an amateur, but the xylophone, he was concert level on this thing. Actually. He was amazing, yeah. Oh, wow. We've got footage of him playing. He wrote long pieces for it as well, and that's that's not bullshit. They exist. Right. You know, so he was composing and playing the the xylophone for the entirety of his life. His decision to focus his scientific studies on the moon proved to be rather astute. He published his first book, Guide to the Moon, in 1953, when he was 29 years old, and less than two years before the Soviet Union and the USA kicked off the space race, which sparked an intense interest in all things space travel, and especially in the moon as the obvious first stopping-off point on mankind's inevitable journey towards the stars. So his book launched the space no, race? No, the space race was going no, to happen No, his anyway. book launched the space race. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, according to Patrick. He yeah. he wrote his book Guide to the Moon and um, some some members of the Soviet sort of hierarchy and the CIA read the book and went, do you know what? We need this moon thing. That should be an American moon. That should be a Russian moon. That was the feeling, wasn't it? No. We can claim... We can claim the moon. That's mental. It's real estate, come on. <laughs> While working on Guide to the Moon, Patrick also decided to try his hand at writing some science fiction in order to encourage the post-war emerging teenage population to become interested in outer space. So he's like, I, I want other people to be as enthusiastic as I am about this stuff. And I'm guessing some of his first books that he read were of the sort of trashy pulp novel... So he just thought, well, I could do that. I, I know enough of the science bit to make it sound genuine. Mm. Um, so why not Why not give it a go? His first fiction book, Master of the Moon, was actually published before Guide to the Moon. So it was his first published work, coming out in 1952. And it would be one of 26 science fiction novels that he would write over the course of his life with suitably bombastic titles such as, you ready for these? They all got moon in them. Not all of them. The moon aliens. They've all they've all got sort of space. Links. Did he write the moonies? Or the the religious cult. What's the the moomins? The moonies, moonies. were a religious cult. <laughs> Still are. No, that was uh, that's no, that's Nordic, isn't it? Moomins. Yeah, yeah. But these. Are the, do you want to hear some other titles? Yeah, go yeah. Ahead. Crater of Fear. It's very moon based. Planet of Fire. Killer Comet. Yeah. <laughs> My favourite, the Terror Star. Are they any good? I don't know. Are they comic books? No, no, they're, they're sort of like, um, I guess you call them young adult fiction now, so like maybe 150, 200 words at words for pages. <laughs> <A> short book. <laughs> 150, 200 pages. Yeah. Um, it's all very, I, I did read a little excerpt of, of one of them. It's very much like a Tintin sort of style novel. And then this happened. And then they were kidnapped. People get knocked out a lot. You know, it's one of those. Every time you need to change location, your hero gets knocked out and dragged somewhere. 
wakes up. Oh no, I'm I'm on I'm, a rocket ship. I'm on the moon. Ah, oh, and these moon men. <laughs> His attempts to encourage the youth into astronomy proved to be relatively successful, and Patrick was happy to offer support and advice to anyone taking an interest in astronomy. He would answer every letter he received throughout his life, typing out responses on the same ancient typewriter he used to write all of his books. And to the end of his life, he would gladly show anyone who called at his house his telescopes, keenly discussing any topic in which the visitor expressed an interest. So if you went and knocked on Patrick Moore's door and said, do you know, I've heard that Venus is going to be um, big in the sky tonight. What what do I need to do to, to get to see it best? What's the best way of viewing it? He would take you into his back garden. He would tell you all about it. He would get his telescope set up and he would be showing you everything. He just loved it so much and he loved That's nice. sharing his enthusiasm with anyone. So <clears throat> if, you, if you went to his house, apparently... The the trick was trying to then get out of the house. There's no celebrities like that anymore. No, no, no. I, I, I assume there must be at least one. No. No? Bruno Mars won't answer any of my calls. <laughs> Aw. Have you tried turning up at his house? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's a very, very sad thing. I don't yeah. know what this, what's happening right now. Okay. The amount Bruno of... Mars, I suppose that's a link to the space thing. Yeah, you you definitely gone for a space themed celebrity, <sighs> haven't you? The amount of people He's all right. <laughs> the amount of people taking an interest only grew in the summer of nineteen fifty five when both the Americans and the Soviets declared that they would soon be sending satellites into orbit, kicking off the space race proper. As the moon was the first obvious stopping off point for space exploration, people showed more and more interest in the moon and the possibility of life already existing there. Because it's all very well saying we're going to go there and we're going to claim it, but what if someone's already using it? That's going to be awkward because, you know, humanity has no history of kicking indigenous peoples off their land. I was was going to do the same sarcastic thing. (laughs) uh, I was just going to... Well, they'll just go to the old playbook is what I was going to say. Here... Have some have some disease ridden blankets. Oh, can you imagine doing that to an alien? <laughs> well, just trying to infect them with like. They'd be so confused. What's yeah, Spanish flu? Yeah. Here you go. Oh. Have you ever found water on the moon? Because they found signs that... that water did exist, but I think well, it's isn't that the thing with the gravity. South Pole? That's why they're so excited about India getting to the South Pole. What to see if the? Because well, to if, be honest, if, if there was like, if there was water, it would be frozen on the dark side of the moon, and that's where they're thinking it might be, and it'll be at the poles. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I mean, I don't know that they found it yet. They've definitely found signs that there could have been, like they did with Mars. They were like, there's the signs that there was water at one point. Because if they find if they find some frozen water, that's it. Then you can put a moon base up there Way. once you've got resources. <laughs> you know how heavy water is. <laughs> Well, heavy water's particularly heavy. Do you think of carrying, you know, the big six-pint milk bottles? <laughs> yeah. But you've got to carry all your water needs to to the moon base. Mm. But if you found it there, Joe... Yeah, but there's, there's yeah. going to be a finite resource because they don't have a sort of weather system. I suppose you'd... Recycle your piss just over and over again. You'd have to, wouldn't you? Well, yeah. You'd have to terraform. But we're not getting into that because this is Patrick Moore. He's not interested in actually going. Well, you'd make sort of a, looking at it. It'd be like a, a giant terrarium. Yeah. That's how you do it. Well, does it have enough of an atmosphere to keep that in? Because that's one of the things 
that you need. You need an atmosphere and a I'm talking in your moon base. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah. You, you've created a, an outer shell. Yeah. Okay. Like well, we'll drop Eden some blueprints. We'll drop some blueprints later. It'll be fine. We'll, okay. We'll get started on it. We can go to the moon. It seems, you know, it'll be China, India, America, Russia. Joe. Joe. Those are the nations and person <laughs> who have who have been to the moon. You'd never shut up about that you went on the moon. Oh, yeah. I, I, it I, reminds I, me of that time on the moon. We could never do a podcast again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is it another moon-based story? <laughs> do you know it is? <laughs> Patrick was naturally more than happy to accept the mantle of moon expert. Or master of the moon, if you will. So when the BBC came calling in 1956 to find an astronomer willing to debate on the potential of there being aliens on the moon, Patrick was more than happy to take part arguing that the UFO craze was nothing but, and I love this phrase, airborne crockery. It's all just a bunch of airborne crockery. The producer of that debate, Paul Johnston, was so impressed by Patrick that when Patrick made the suggestion that the BBC should commission a monthly astronomy show, for which Patrick offered the name Stars of the Month... It's a terrible name. Well, Paul didn't think so. He began championing this idea to anyone and everyone who would listen. His enthusiasm resulted in the project being greenlit in December of 1956 for a potential start in spring of the following year, which coincidentally was when Patrick's next book, The Amateur Astronomer, was due to be published. So win-win. Yeah. I'm going to be hosting this TV show um, encouraging people to take up amateur astronomy. And do you know, there's this really good book that's just come out called The Amateur Astronomer that will really detail all of the things you need to know. He's he's sinking up his media empire already. Well, if you're smart, that's what you're going to be yeah. doing. In 1956, 57, though, he is already creating a brand and, and linking the things together so that it all, all points to Patrick. All things are coming up Patrick. It's all right. It's not a good chair. I need to get a better chair for, for guests. Chair, are you up? <laughs> I want this... Yeah, if if it's right angled wooden chair, if it's any consolation, and you this know, padded, this chair is covered in cat hair, and if you sat on it, you would die with your allergies. This would be the equivalent of a, an electric chair for you, just extra slowly. The first episode of Patrick's program aired on April twenty fourth, nineteen fifty seven, though the name had been changed to "The Sky at Night." Patrick was lucky in that this date allowed him to focus on the Arendt-Roland Comet, the brightest comet seen since the last time Halley's Comet had passed by in 1910. The Arendt-Roland Comet had a distinctive second tail that appeared to project from the front, and had only become visible in the Northern Hemisphere again on April 20th, following a slingshot round the sun. Wow. So, so it come bright, 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 and then it had gone off. But it just so happened that he timed his first episode of his show to be when it was coming to its peak on the way back. Wow. So it's as bright as it could be in the sky. You could all, you could see it in the daytime with the naked eye. It was th- that kind of oh, brightness, wow. yeah. Is that still, would that come round again? Well, it's funny you should ask that because if you are wondering when the next opportunity to see the orange rolling comet is, there isn't one. The comet passed too close to Jupiter and was subsequently, in Patrick's own words unceremoniously hurled out of the solar system. Oh, wow. So it's the gravitational slingshot round yeah. the sun and then round Jupiter, and then it just went, whee! And we will never see it again. It is hurtling outwards towards, you know, a different solar system now. Some some other race of people might go, ooh, two tails. Hmm, it's unusual. 
nice. When's Haley's Comet come around? Isn't that every 70 years? So 2050-ish? Because if it came around in 1910, then 1980-ish, so 1960s? Uh, 2060? Something like that? Maybe? I don't know. I think it's around every 70-odd years. Okay. Hmm. We can check. 1910, 1980, 2000 yeah. 2050, 50, wouldn't yeah. it be? 70, yeah. Less than six months after the first episode aired... The space age truly began with the successful launch of Sputnik 1 on October the 4th, 1957. Throughout the course of the space race, Patrick worked hard to maintain a scientist's detachment from the political posturing. And as a result of his reputation for neutrality, he was asked to assist both sides when they decided that a landing on the moon was the next goal to compete over. As with the young people of Britain, Patrick was happy to help anyone who asked, be they Soviets... Or Americans. Right, it didn't matter. No, if they asked for his opinion, he would. He, he was just excited that they were going to be doing it and at the sort of the science around it and just how much of a, a feat it was going to be. He, he was totally caught up in just the romanticism of it all. As a result, on October 24th, 1959, he was given the opportunity to broadcast the first pictures of the dark side of the moon that were being beamed back from the Russian satellite Luna 3. So the Soviets were like, yeah, of course, Patrick, we will send you... You've been so helpful to us, comrade. We will send you some pictures uh, back so that you can put them on your TV show. <laughs> OK, yep, fine. That's what the British are watching. Cool. Right. Sorry, this is a bit of a space question. Mm. So, the dark side of the moon... Yep. ...of the, the face we see... Yep. ...is locked in orbit, so it... It's it, always facing it's the It's always Earth, yeah. facing us. So that... The dark side of the moon will become bright. At some points, the dark side of the moon will we'll be face facing the, the sun. sun. And, and, yeah. and that's when we can't see it in the night sky because now the dark side of the moon is facing us. So the dark side of the moon really is it's, it's the just the face that we can't see. Yeah, it's, it's the not face that, it's that we the can't see. It's the dark side of the moon. It's just the, it's yeah, the by face. dark, it means, it means it's yeah. dark to us because, yeah. yeah, it's not facing us. Okay. Yeah. Right. I, do you know what? We need Patrick Moore here to just... If Maybe if I got the guide to the moon, we could look and it would probably be page one. Yeah. Um, later, Patrick was invited Sorry, to... Sorry, that only just occurred, occurred to no, me no. then. That it's a good question. That the dark side of the moon... Isn't always dark. Yeah, that's yeah. just then that happened. Later, Patrick was invited to Moscow to be made a member of the USSR Astronomical and Geodetic Society. Patrick claims that during his time in Russia, he met Yuri Gagarin, whom he said he got on with famously. Unfortunately, though, by the time Patrick picked up his honorary membership in 1971, Yuri had been dead for nearly three years after an accident while flying a MiG-15. So he either got some of the details mixed up, or he was once again guilty of embellishing the story because he wanted to be able to say that he'd met the first cosmonaut. I mean, a lot of his lies could be... Um him misremembering dates yeah definitely and I'd... and he's living in a cosmic time <laughs> he's not <laughs> well a lot's happening i mean to be fair while the space race and everything's going on a lot is happening for him he's like the go-to guy for every time there's a new satellite or they've done a new thing it's come on patrick we need to go and get footage we need to do this we need to do that and that's i guess we're, we're trying to be nice to him but there's a good chance he's just like do you know what would be good if I said I met Yuri Gagarin, because 
Well, he can't say I didn't eat him. As far as, you know. Is this a defamation? You can't defame the dead. Oh, so you can just... Why? Why is that? Just just a lawyer, because who's who's going to sue you? The family? Well, you've not defamed their character. He's got no family, he was a bachelor. Yeah, like... well, I'm fine. Legally, we're fine. He was a fine. single, he was the only child yeah. and a bachelor. Yeah. So I think any anyone who was sort of claiming damages would have a tenuous link at best. It just seems strange you'd write a whole podcast to just... I'm not defaming it. A I dead think man a, a liar. I think he's a brilliant guy, I think... <laughs> I see a lot of myself in the way that I will embellish stories. Right. Not out of any malice towards anyone, but just that's a, the story would be better if this was in it. So why can't this be in it? All, you know, it's all stories at the end of the day anyway. Why can't it be a good story? And Patrick was great at telling a good story. Yeah. That's why people watched him talk about planets. You know, it, it's quite dry material. You weren't getting the same viewership when the Open University were doing a lecture on yeah, yeah. astronomy as you were for Patrick getting up there and telling all of his stories and his enthusiasm. Well, it's before, like, computer graphics and stuff. Yeah, oh, no, they, they pioneered easy, a like, lot of this Brian, kind of stuff. Brian Cox's Wonders of the Universe and Wonders of the Solar System. Mm. Just beautiful how it looks. Well, I don't know if... if I with him, it's here. just black and white images. Well, it started off black and white. It went into colour. Yeah. They, they experimented... Which really is descriptive powers that are mm-hmm. selling this whole... Yeah. yeah. And they'd experiment with things like they got the first... Uh, they figured out how to film through a telescope so that they could get really good live shots of things through trial and error. They used sort of like graphics, you know, like um, almost like overhead projection slides yeah. and stuff. So they were they were trying with the technology. They had to keep it as up-to-date as possible. Throughout the 60s, Patrick provided the British public with a running commentary on the advances on both sides of the Iron Curtain. However, the capitalist-communist dichotomy was not the only one he had to try and negotiate. Because in 1965, he agreed to help set up a new planetarium in Armagh, in Northern Ireland. This required him to fly regularly between Belfast and London in order to continue presenting the sky at night. And after two years of this, Patrick had finally gotten the planetarium up and running, which somehow involved flying to Japan in order to buy a state-of-the-art projector. So he managed to somehow wangle a trip to Japan out of this. Yeah. It's like, I'm, I'm setting up a, a planetarium in Northern Ireland, so you definitely need to send me to the other side of the world. That makes sense. Japanese are renowned for like photography and lenses. and. Oh, no. Yeah. I, I think he was going on a scope and mission to get himself some new telescopes and stuff. He's like, yeah. how can I charge this? to my work at the planetarium. Hmm. I know. Because I'm sure some of these projectors existed a bit closer to home that he... Because it was just to see a a prototype. It wasn't like he brought it back with him. Mm. It's like there must have been a working model somewhere closer than Japan. But he he wanted to go. Is that in the Southern Hemisphere, Japan? Yeah. Not quite. Because they have a whole set, different set of... Stars. Yeah, yeah, then it'll be in the Southern Hemisphere. It's below the equator, isn't it? But that'd be quite interesting, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. As an astronomer. Yeah, yeah. So he... And it it will be on the company dime then. Yeah. Good for him. And he loved c- culling dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> well, as soon as he got the new projector, so as soon as he got his trip to Japan out of it, he uh, resigned his post in order to move back to England. When asked his thoughts on the troubles in Northern Ireland, though, he responded that he'd never been able to see what all the fuss was about, stating... After all, both sets worship the same god. Yeah. Which I th- think sums up Patrick's understanding of humans. Yeah, it's more political than... Yeah, he he didn't understand humans yeah. at all. He understood astronomy. And people who liked astronomy, 
that's how he split it. That was his dichotomy. There's people out there who like astronomy and they're friends. There are people out there who don't like astronomy who are enemies. Right. He could also stand people who like cricket. So And xylophones. Yeah. There's like small, discreet groups <laughs> of people that are okay. Everyone else is strange and fearful. And... Isn't that everybody? Like when, when I say to people I don't like football, like I don't understand why people yeah, like no. watch the premiership. It took me a long time to come to terms with that, yeah. but that's a valid... And there'll be, you know, there'll be listeners thinking, what the fuck? You are, I, don't, I don't get it. I know you don't. Yeah. I, still, I love I, xylophones. <laughs> I still tell you the scores and you're like, yeah, we lost 3-1 last night, you know. We? Sunderland, yeah. You. Blackburn Not lost 3-1. Not even 3-1. you. Not even me. A team that I follow lost 3-1 to Sunderland last night. That's bad, isn't it? it well, yeah. Sunderland? Yeah. Are they good? Uh, they're better, better than better. us, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> But despite this shockingly worry, simplistic take worry, on things... Don't 30 more of those games yeah. this season. There's more. You'll play them th- three more times. That's Scotland. You play each team four times. Because yeah. the Scottish League have less teams, so they play them more often. In England, it's twice. Home and away. Despite this shockingly simplistic take on things... Solve the troubles. Well, no. He said, he's claimed. I was going to say, he was able to peg Ian Paisley as being a bit of a wrongan. So despite having no understanding of the geopolitical situation, he was able to look at the Reverend Ian Paisley and go, well, he's a twat. Right. Which, you know, something's cut through. <laughs> Don't they? It's, just like, <laughs> it's, it's part, part of just the collective unconsciousness. We all know that that man's a bit of an arse. He moved into a thatched cottage with his mother called Farthings, where he would remain for the rest of his life. Because it seems like the natural home of a Sir Patrick Moore is a thatched cottage with a little shed at the bottom of the garden with his telescopes in. Is his mum still alive? His mum's still alive at this point, yep. Not to this day? Oh, God, no. No. No, she'd be... God, she'd be 150 if she was, so Mm. no. And do you know what? She never did pick up her opera career again, even after the death of her husband. I'm sure they'd have little evenings. Yeah, he's playing the xylophone, she's singing in her falsetto. Yeah. Yeah. One of the high points of Patrick's career came on July 16th, 1969, when Patrick presented a special edition of The Sky at Night for 10 hours straight as the first men stepped out onto the moon. Wow. Mm. 10 hours under studio lights without a break. The only breaks were like when they were flipping over to live footage and he'd apparently run off and just have a little bit of water straight back on. Yeah. Ten hours, though. But his enthusiasm carried him through because this was the greatest night of his life. Oh, of course it was, yeah. Because I imagine he's thinking, and within two years, they'll be taking tourists up to the moon and I'll, I'll be front and centre, number one. They'll have to build a giant spacesuit to accommodate me, but I'm sure they'll do that for me. After all the help I rendered in order for them to actually land on the yeah, moon. yeah. Although he's made many claims to have met many famous people, we do know that Patrick definitely met Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. And the Queen. And the Queen, yeah. In fact, following his interview with Eugene Cernan, one of the astronauts from the Apollo 17 mission in 1982, Patrick could claim to have personally met every single person who has ever walked on the moon's surface, to this point in history at least. So he didn't think it was faked? 
No, right. no. I think like Buzz Aldrin, if you you'd said that, that, he would punch you in the face. <laughs> <It's> amazing, that. <laughs> it's, it's one of my favourite videos. Just, I, I don't give a fuck anymore. And the next person, conspiracy nuts, who comes up to me, he just, he was waiting for it, you could tell. He must have had that like a couple of times a week for the last 40 years of his life, Buzz. And it's just like, no, one more, the next bugger. He says, it's fake. I'm having him. He walked on the moon. Yep. And people told him <laughs> they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Constantly. <laughs> it was all fake. It was oh all fake. God. Anyway, throughout the 70s and 80s, Patrick continued to cover NASA missions and to encourage amateur astronomy. Once, while a guest in the US in 1972, he claims he was put up in the Watergate Hotel <laughs> about me. six weeks before it became the location for one of the biggest scandals in US history. Incidentally, I was looking up exactly where the Watergate Hotel was. It's situated in an area of DC called Foggy Bottom. Why does that never get brought up? I don't know. The, there's an area of people are more capital, mature than you. <laughs> yeah, the capital <laughs> of America reason. called Foggy Bottom. Yeah, I'm just thinking. Yeah, when they're doing all the sleaze, the swamp of um, drain you know, the swamp. Yeah, drain the swamp. Why? Why no one's made the link to Foggy Bottom? Isn't it? Is it in the same way that like? Fanny's not funny to Americans. I mean, you've got it right way. there. President Trump and Foggy Bottom. Yeah, exactly. Come on. They missed a trick. Back in Britain in the 80s, Patrick claimed that he had had to fight off two muggers. This led him to take an interest in politics. Because up until that point, he hadn't cared. His views could best be described. I don't see the link. Well, he fought off two muggers and he was like, wait a minute. Aren't there supposed to be police officers to stop this kind of thing? what's going on and then suddenly he realized that there was this thing called politics and that they were the there were people who decided about police officer numbers and stuff so he's like oh right okay i think i need to tell people what the what the country should be like then okay so yeah like i said eclectic views he claimed to be a fan of both tony ben the very left-wing uh, you know firebrand and Mom. enoch powell yeah. so the rivers of blood speech he's, he's a fan of both men Seems difficult to square that circle, but he managed it. He was against hunting and capital punishment, but was also a vocal supporter of the Monster Raving Looney Party and UKIP at different times. Right. So he he oscillated. He's out of his depth. Yeah. As most people are with politics. Well, I think it's fair to say he didn't fit in with any particular political party, and instead he would just align himself on an issue-by-issue -issue basis with whichever party was closest to that view that he held. So he was pretty much a friend of whoever agreed with him. I feel like he's a friend of anybody who's friends with the moon. <laughs> well, that too. He likes all astronomers. What was the monster? The monster raving loony party. So and loony UKIP. from Luna. Oh, yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah, lunatic. Yeah, yeah there we go. And UKIP. That's I'm working on That's it. just really upsetting, to be fair. <laughs> when I read that, it's like, oh. And it turned out he was a bit of a racist. Well, he was... Well, I mean, I say that he was no, he's an anti-European. He oh. wasn't he didn't seem to be a particularly racist, except he just never got over the war and had weirdly decided that it was all of Europe that was for fault for the Second World War. Mm. So he, he blamed all of Europe for the death of his imaginary fiance by the end. She's sad. When people challenged his views as being old fashioned, though, Patrick responded, I may be accused of being a dinosaur. But I would remind you that the dinosaurs ruled Earth for a very long time. Okay. Mm. 
I mean, he sort of, they called him old fashioned and he, he told himself that they were calling him a dinosaur and then made that link. Yeah. I may be a dinosaur. No one said <laughs> no, that. No, you know, Patrick, you're, you're a human you're, man. You're a human racist. <laughs> you're a human racist. <laughs> <laughs> then in the nineties, this is, this is the thing he's famous for. Patrick signed up for the TV show that would make his face familiar to thousands of children who had no interest in astronomy whatsoever. For reasons best known to himself, he agreed to be the floating cyborg head known as the Games Master. Oh, yeah. A TV show that ran for seven series. He would answer questions about Nintendo and Sega games and set challenges for players to try and complete in order to win a golden joystick an item of computer hardware already obsolete in 1992 when the series started. Patrick clearly, when you watch back the old footage, had no idea what he was reading in the script, but he continued in the role week in, week out for seven years until 1997. Uh, five years, seven seasons, right. 1997. So, yeah, that's that's how I knew him. I think he owed someone at the broadcasting house a favour. Well, I think this was on Channel 4, so I, I don't think it was even linked to that. Someone just went... You, you, money, Patrick? Yeah, <laughs> you'd, you'd like some money. I like the fact that they replaced his monocle with a red eye. I remember. It's so like a cyborg eye. So I was shocked to find that he actually wore a monocle in real life because I'd, I'd only ever seen his face with this sort of bad CGI thing would, would over Would you it. watch this? Yes, yes. It was great. It was like people had to do things and it was like Sonic. It was really basic stuff. I watched the first episode and the first challenge, a guy had to try and get um, a certain amount of rings on the first Sonic stage. And it was like he was he had two minutes to get, he said something like there's 170 rings. We told him he had to get 140 of those rings. And he came back to us and said, no, I think I'd like to try and get 160 of those rings within um, two minutes. He ended up getting all of them. Right. This kid was, he was good. Yeah. Yeah. And he got his golden joystick and there was no, no other prize attached. It was... Was it functional? No. Oh. It was it was probably a bust old Atari joystick that someone had sprayed gold. <laughs> They're just like, there you go. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> but he could go to school and say to his friends, did you see me on, on Games Master? And they'd say, yes. There was a weird subplot as well. The, the presenter started off in a church and then he ended up going to hell. What? <laughs> like, the, there was a sort of narrative to the storyline that was running through this gaming show that the presenter ended up dying at like the end of season two and then he ended up in hell. Okay. And he rose through purgatory in heaven in the final series. It was like that makes really sense. he was levelling up. Yeah, it was but it was really high concept considering and now let's talk about Super Mario three. That was boss, wasn't it? Mm, it was great. I would like to say that it was Games Master that was the reason that he received a knighthood in two thousand and one. But this was for services to science. Similarly, his BAFTA win in 2002 was for his work on The Sky at Night. By this time, he presented the show for nearly 45 years without having ever missed an episode. He would keep this record going until 2004, when a bout of food poisoning forced him to miss his first ever show. That was, however, a one-off, and in 2007, Patrick hosted the 50th anniversary edition of The Sky at Night. However, Patrick was 85 by this point, and his body was starting to give up on him. He had already had to give up two of his great passions, playing cricket and his xylophone. With his cricket, he, he wasn't much of a batsman. I'm sure you're not surprised to learn. He was a bowler with what he described as quite an eccentric action. Um, 
underarm. <laughs> but he winds it up for... <laughs> Whoa, hey! yeah. yeah, apparently there was only one one game where he scored more than 30 uh, batting. And he'd set himself the target the entire season to score a century over the course of a season. So not over the course of one innings or even one game, an entire cricketing season. And in the first game, he scored randomly 36. And he's like, so I'm, a th- I'm over a third of the way there. I'm bound to do it this season. He ended up at the end of the season with 41 <laughs> runs. Wow. So he really peaked early that year. Um, but we know he wasn't athletic. No, God, no. But he, he, you don't need to be if you're a spinner. Because you you just take a couple of shuffly steps and then you release, yeah. and then he will probably be stood. You know, it's like go and stand over there on the on the boundary fence, Patrick. He's just looking up at the sky yeah. with his mouth open, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just looking into the sun. Oh no, he, <laughs> that's he, how he got the red eye. He'd have never been stupid enough to look directly into the sun. No, no. By twenty eleven, his arthritis had become so bad that he could no longer even operate his telescopes. He began hosting The Sky at Night from his home, with his last episode being aired in January 2013. This was quite the feat, considering he had died on December the 9th, 2012, at the age of 89. However, this posthumous episode, in my mind, makes up for the episode he missed in 2004. Yeah. So I'm happy to say he never missed an episode in his life, from the point at which he started this show. So he was at least every committed week. to this. Yeah. Uh, no, it's every month. Once a month. Once a month for... 50 what would you say yeah 50 no 55 years yeah for 55 years he he produced that yeah so fair play to the man plus some specials as well in there today a bust of sir patrick moore is on display in the national space center in leicester the planetarium there also bears his name after he opened it in 2012 just 11 months before he died because underneath some of his questionable views and tendency to stretch the truth, Sir Patrick Moore was a champion of amateur astronomy who just wanted everyone to enjoy looking at the heavens as much as he did. You know, that was... To his dying day, he was still answering letters on his typewriter. Despite the fact he had crippling arthritis, so you can imagine... Just, uh, uh, uh. Just pounding it with his... Uh... <laughs> Xylophone mallets. Little Timmy needs to know. He's asked a question. No, we do not switch the moon off during the day. Because Brian Cox turned up just after him. Sort of took that. No, no. I know Derek... Um... Brian Cox turned up uh, at the same time. You know, Patrick would do the shows. He'd have Brian Cox on. He'd have uh, Brian May on. He'd have all the Brians on. Yeah. Dora O'Brien was on. Dora O'Brien. O'Brien. Dora O'Brien was on. Anyone who had the name Brian, he was he he loved. Mm. And the sources, ketchup. Every time, <laughs> the sources for this episode, and I say sources because I needed two. The Molasses. first, <laughs> the first source, Patrick Moore, the autobiography, the two thousand and five edition. Although, as I've said, a lot of what Patrick said about his life was demonstrably untrue so i needed another source to 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 cross-reference what he was saying and that was this amazing um biography written by a guy called martin mobley the man the myth the liar he's called it came from out of space wearing an raf blazer and it's his biography it is meticulously researched it is a whopping 645 pages long did you read all that I skimmed most of it. <laughs> Did you read the other one? 
uh, yeah, I read Patrick Moore's autobiography, which starts like um, after the RAF stuff. It starts basically with him going, so I left the RAF. There's like a chapter and a half. I arrived via on comet. His, yeah, on his childhood. Hatched from my egg. <laughs> he basically is like, he's writing his own autobiography and it starts with, I see no reason to spend a lot of time talking about my childhood or war years. So let's start with when I was a teacher that one time. Oh, yeah, there's the interesting bit, yeah. the meat. And he's talking about how once the pool was so sludgy that they couldn't get to the bottom of it to do a thing. And they sent a boy in to the sludge and he came out looking like a swamp thing. I'm like, yeah, this is this is gold, Patrick. I don't want to hear about your time in Bomber Command. Yeah. That's not going to excite me. But, yeah, so that is Sir Patrick Moore. Probably one of those images you didn't say- when you're thinking of a British eccentric... For a lot of people, Sir Patrick Moore's face would pop up. The monocle, you know, the fact that he was that corpulent, he was that larger man, his, that high-pitched sort of delivery of that really sort of rapid-fire. His image is mixed in my memory with Churchill. Really? They, they look the same. Well, he was a fan of Churchill, obviously. Yeah. Um, Send them back well, where they came from. It took me a while. It just... Because you didn't say Sir Patrick Moore at the start, because you said Patrick. What was his, his middle name? His name was actually Alfred. What was Patrick. his middle name? Uh, flipping out. He name. started. It was like Patrick. His full name. His. You was said Alfred Patrick Caldwell Moore. Right. So that's what you started with. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wasn't going to go. The child who would grow up to be famous amateur astronomer Sir Patrick oh, Moore was born. Right. Because that kind of, it, you know, it, I was thinking I was being a bit stupid, not getting to. No, no. Looking up. I didn't, I didn't want to get it, it immediately, purpose. yeah. Because otherwise you go, oh, yeah, I know that guy, Monocle. Anyway, next, next story. So there you go. That's the first post-hiatus episode. Cracking. Yeah. And um, I've tried this with Evie. We're, we're now signing off by thanking our poddy peeps. What? That's what we're going to call people who listen to us. We're going to call them our poddy peeps. And I, there's going to be merch. That's cute when... Consistently eccentric no. potty peeps is going to be. No, there's no. going to be a full merch line. There's going to be t-shirts. No, I'm not doing any of that. Looking at doing some um, tasteful sort of TV adverts uh, where we're going to dress up as potty peeps, which is sort of like a, a giant head with with the headphones on for listening to the podcast. And we're going to see if we can't generate some TikToks. That's cute with Evie. Do it with Evie. She That's she fine. wasn't down with it, so now you're, you're my second choice. Did she not want to do it? She didn't want to do it. She refused. Oh, she, has this... <laughs> she refused. She has some sense. She refused to even say the word potty peep. I'm not going to do it either. Oh. Well, I'm recording with them I'm not doing so. any... Ollie will do it. <laughs> I'm sure Ollie... Ollie will do it, probably. I'll, I'll tell Ollie that everyone else has done it. Okay, see what And he then does. he'll have to do it. I'll die if he says that. <laughs> poddy, poddy I'm, not gonna, I'm not even going to do it because I know you'll just edit it out. <laughs> Damn. I'm not even going to use it. <laughs> just keep yeah. funny peeps. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.